The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. It seems to me that sobriety, whatever flavor of sobriety, we're working on or with or sustaining is a precious thing and things that are precious in our lives require a certain amount of protection there's a lot of forces going on that don't care that much about our well-being, our sobriety, and so on. And I'm, I'm not talking about people so much, but just uh, attitudes, thoughts, manipulations, power games, all kinds of stuff. And I'm not here to talk about that. But I do want to start with this perspective of protecting what's precious to us. I've been wanting in the last year to to dig up some of the more obscure teachings from early Buddhism that people aren't so familiar with. Partly because I'm into this stuff, aware that not everybody is, but also um, some of the more obscure teachings have little nuggets that add nuance to to our practice. One uh, one set of these teachings that when I was uh, pondering it a few months ago around the time the title of this talk was chosen, uh, I've been reading, it's just a short passage but it brought back a memory of a teaching that was chanted at Suen Mok regularly. So it's something that ran through my mind repeatedly, not every day, but a few times a week. And recently, as I thought about this, it struck me that this, this teaching and others like it are an aspect of practice that supports and protects the path. Um, for example, if we think of the path as the Noble Eightfold Path or the Twelve Steps, that whatever path we're working with as a set of guidelines, teachings, perspectives, such 
which is the 12 steps, then there are what you might call supplementary teachings to support and protect them. That's the context I'd like to offer today's topic, the noble treasures, the Arya Dana, or Arya Dana. You hear the word Dana. This is a different word, spelled different, but sounds similar. Um, and this word means there's no etymological connection either. It means treasure or wealth. And the context in early Buddhism is that a Buddha, or the Buddha, who sometimes is known as the Noble One, uh, had these treasures due to the way he lived and in some people's understanding due to past lives and good he had done in the past. And though, so he had these seven treasures, all of which are internal. You could think of them as spiritual treasures. They're not things like gold and jewelry and a hot sports car or a condo in Hawaii, but they're inner treasures. So I'd like to go through these today from the perspective of these are things that can protect our practice, whether we think of that in terms of Noble Eightfold Path or certain form of meditation or a collection of meditation practices and or 12 steps. Although some of these, I think, the 12 steps touch on in a way that the Noble Eightfold Path doesn't. And some of these, I think, would clearly be helpful in protecting sobriety. Let me uh, quote one of the places this is mentioned in early Buddhism. Faith or confidence or the treasure of faith, the treasure of virtue, the treasure of conscience, the treasure of having ethical boundaries, the treasure of having learned things one would do well to learn, the treasure of generosity, and the treasure of wisdom. These are seven treasures. In one 
in one who has these treasures. Um, it's a tricky word for me to translate. It kind of means gentleman, which gets into trouble these days. But but the idea um, is basically a good person, somebody who's living in an honorable, worthy way. The sages call him or her not poor. Her life is not wasted. Therefore, when recalling the Buddha's teaching, one who is wise will ever build faith, virtue, trust, and Dhamma vision. So that mentions the, the seven, and I'd, I'd like to discuss each of them a little bit, and as I do, encourage you to think about, for those of you in a 12-step program, whatever form of sobriety is your, your concern, whether from alcohol, drugs, or whatever, do any of these make sense as something to help protect uh, the very precious treasure of sobriety? Or, and also think of it as practice. Those who take refuge in a meditation practice and uh, Buddhist teachings other such things. These are treasures. Sometimes they're described as refuges, but they're they're also seen as treasures. And like people do with material treasures, worldly treasures, you guard them. You know, you lock your car so uh, stuff doesn't wander or get borrowed in ways you may never see again. Of course, you can be very free with your treasures, too. With inner spiritual treasures, the whole guarding is a, a different thing. It's not about locking them up, and they can actually be shared quite a bit without dissipating them. But still, we need to protect them. So I'll try to uh, comment on this way of understanding these seven treasures, but hopefully you're, you're thinking about it yourself in terms of the 12 steps, the Noble Eightfold Path, sobriety, or even just mindfulness. Those of us who've started to live a life centered around mindfulness, it's a treasure. And there are the days that, for whatever reason, mindfulness is uh, not there. Maybe we had, like for me, too much coffee yesterday and then didn't sleep well, and then things, one thing leads to another, and uh, mindfulness is a little more erratic. So 
think of these things in terms of what might protect them. And I, I think the, the seven noble treasures is one way to explore this. So the first is sada. Usually you'll see it translated as faith, though now in North America you see it more often as trust and confidence because the word faith pushes a lot of buttons. And so in Vipassana Buddhism, uh, people try to get around this. I don't have any trouble with faith. Um, I'm not a recovering Catholic or anything. My background was Protestant. Um, and I'm just used to it from my years in Thailand that this word is translated faith. But trust is fine, confidence is fine as a translation. But the key question is, one, what do you understand as faith? And, and in Buddhism, it's not that you accept some teaching or dogma without question. It's not, or the even believing in something you don't know. Buddhism, the Buddhist perspective is the things we have faith in are things that we also have the potential to fully realize for ourselves. So to have faith in sobriety is not just that it's out there mysteriously, but it's something that we can know for ourselves. And the same with having faith in Buddha. That what Buddha is and represents is also a capacity in us that we can more and more know for ourselves. So in Buddhism, faith and wisdom intersect. At some, they grow closer and closer together. So a second question for this that I use is, what matters most in our, our lives? Especially for those I meet who, who have issues with the word faith. And there's a, a growing movement in Western Buddhism that is pushing back about beliefs and Buddhist truths sounds too dogmatic to them, and I think they have useful points. <coughs> On the other hand, like it or not, we all operate to a certain extent on faith. There are things, even if we believe, and I use the word belief intentionally, even if we believe we're very rational, we think everything through, that's never true. We may do that a lot, but if we really pay attention to much of our behavior, there's a lot we take on trust. Um, <clears throat> let's say you went shopping yesterday and you bought stuff and you came home and you put things in the fridge and you close the fridge and then the, now it's today and you wake up and you're walking to the fridge, 
do you know that that piece of cheese or soy milk or broccoli that you bought yesterday is there? Or do you have faith that it's there? I would say, especially if you live with somebody else or kids <laughs> or have real smart dogs, um, you don't know. But that would just be an example of all the little things we take on faith or when we drive a car. We're basically trusting that the vast majority of drivers are going to know the laws, drive decently, and so on, even though there's a certain amount of evidence to the contrary. So, so that's my little argument for why actually we all operate a lot more on faith than some of us wish to admit. And so for me, it begs the question, what really matters to us? What orients our faith, our trust um, in life? Some of us may refer to higher power. A traditional Buddhist would refer to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But my question isn't what's the, the accepted terminology or thinking from whatever groups we're affiliated in, but more of an examination deep down. On a day-to-day -day basis, where are we putting our trust? Used to be a lot of people trusted in their employer. It used to be you could get a job, there would be health insurance, affordable even, and you could stay with that company until you retired. People really put faith in that until it fell apart to a fair, fair amount. It used to be you could trust in Social Security and things like that. And now that even the post office, so that's, that's one area. And I'm bringing this up because often we put a lot of faith in stuff like that, which unfortunately in our society, even faith in the bridges we're driving across <laughs> is shakier uh, or shaky. But how much are we putting faith in other things, especially inner resources, inner treasures? So to me, it's a good question to acknowledge that we do operate on faith or trust quite a bit, and, and to ask ourselves, in actuality, in the way we live and behave, where are we placing our faith and trust? Because it's easy as a, for example, of somebody who's committed to Buddhism or takes on Buddhism in some way, as I've done, 
to to say, yeah, I have faith in the Buddha's awakening, I have faith in the truthfulness of the Dhamma, I have faith in the good practice of Sangha. But does that organize or really support the way I live my life? Or if we're in a 12-step program, which, by the way, I'm I'm not myself. How how does trust or faith operate in, in that context for each of us? I see this as a treasure that can protect our path, our sobriety, our mindfulness, because it orients us. I think that's the meaning of sadai in Buddhism, that even though our sense of it may be fuzzy, our experience of it may be off and on or not very strong, but yet we have a sense or some glimpses or whatever, like when, when people do the first step, you know, you bottomed out or whatever, and then, you know, it's either this or more of this, which is full of suffering, or, you know, I'm going to put some trust in this because it's all I've got. Seems to me the first step, first couple steps really exemplify that. And it would be the same for Buddha's practice. If we really acknowledge, you know, if we don't have faith or commitment to certain certain things, and exactly what those are may take time to really understand and experience, then the alternative is, in Buddha's terminology, uh, distress, suffering, pain. So that's one treasure. And that the orienting and the commitment to something that can be refuge seems to be vital. It's not, faith is not mentioned in the Noble Eightfold Path. And so certain people might choose to pretend we can do without it. But I, I think if we really observe ourselves, nobody can do without it. You can call it something else. Uh, but we've got to put some trust somewhere, and, and that could be hard. But this is one of the protections that we can draw on. A second one is sila, which I'll translate as virtue. In Buddhist teaching, sila is basically about our behavior, our physical actions in the world, and our speech or communications. More broadly, it can also represent of virtuous qualities as well. 
but for now I'll focus mainly on the behavior and it's often been translated in terms of morals and morality, ethics, which unfortunately another set of uh, problematic words for a lot of uh, North American Buddhists. Probably not as troublesome in 12-step programs, but I don't really know. In Buddhist teaching, a foundation of sila is restraint. That we, we take on restraints. And that we learn that there's stuff that it's better to not do and not say. That's the negative formulation. So you've probably heard, you know, the five so-called five precepts. Literally, they're the five sila. And that gets translated as precept, which is the so-so translation. Um, and they're basically refraining from killing or harming other breathing beings. That's a very literal translation. Uh, abstaining, refraining from taking what's not given, and so on. But there's also the other side of sila, which is developing the good behavior. So we abstain from harmful, doing things that physically harm other beings. And we can do things to protect life or to heal. Heal animals, humans, ecosystems. And the same with, we can not only refrain from taking what's not given, but we can, we can protect. And since I'm not a very good capitalist, I won't frame it as is often done in terms of property, but um, we could protect people's, the fruits of their labor. Um, a lot of people work hard to acquire some basic needs in life, and we could work to protect this for everyone, um, which means I would advocate universal health care. It would help the first precept, too. Um, but I'm drifting into uh, political arguments and don't want to get too far into them. Same around the third precept, abstaining from sexual misconduct, promoting healthy relationships. And that's a whole other political morass, but maybe sometime we, we need to go there a bit to really protect um, not just sexual behavior, but Ajahn Buddhadasa would stress the third precept is about not harming the beloved of others or the loved ones of others. So he even used the example for a child, the way you treat a, a child's doll or teddy bear 
because that's an object of, of love for a child. Or nowadays, it could be somebody's cat. We've got lots of cats. Or, but also people's partners, parents, children, and so on. So I'm already framing the sila, the basic sila can be seen very much as protection of others and the world around us. So early Buddhism sees this as the foundation for society. Unfortunately, these things have got turned into moralistic judgment and stuff like that, which makes it hard to have good discussions about what what really is moral and ethical, which is sad. And then to the theme of this talk, sila not only is for protecting others, society, ecosystems, children, spiritually it protects ourselves. Classic example of that is when our sila, when our behavior is sloppy, then we live with regret. We live with, and regret's not so bad, but we also live with worry when we're telling lots of little lies. Then just the, the worry about what if somebody finds out or the difficulty of keeping track what you told various people, which some of us know if you've been drinking, it's even harder to keep track of all that and then stuff gets back to bite us. And same, the same way we relate to property, other people's labor, or, you know, when people put a lot of work into writing something, I do translation, so this is a bit of an issue. Uh, writers, and Buddhist writers don't make any money. It's the people who publish the writers who get the salaries. <laughs> which to me is a little weird. I don't have an answer to that, and I'm not worried about it. So how do we protect and respect those things which then creates an inner freedom? So this is uh, some perspectives on the protections of sila, which is the second wealth. Spending more time on these first two than I'm going to be able to do with the rest, so allow me to move along. The third treasure is hiri. And the, I'm going to translate it safely today as conscience. The old translation, if you look around in older Theravada materials, is not very popular with people. Conscience is described, or hiti, is that when you have the opportunity or the impulse or temptation to behave in a certain way, do something, that there's 
a sense of Haiti that is conscious is good enough of a word that if conscience is there, you just don't want to do it. Uh, what would be a good example? Like if you're browsing the web, like um, I follow European soccer. So one of the sites I go to for how Barcelona is doing, get to the bottom and there's all, you know, the 20 hottest chicks and the 10 this, you know, and there's somebody in a bathing suit. So there's the temptation to click. And some would say this is harmless, but I believe it's really not healthy, both the way women are portrayed and all kinds of uh, stuff around that. So hitty is the sense that just says, no, not not cool. It's not judgmental. It's not a you shouldn't do it. It's just this conscious that, no, this is yucky. This is, this is a kind of uh, messiness or uh, unhealthiness that I don't want in my life. I don't really want to participate, even though another part of us is maybe attracted or drawn to a behavior, speech, thoughts. And this one is actually in a separate context considered to be one of the world protectors. Hiti and the next one in this group, Otapa, are described as Logapala, the protectors of the world, because if we have, if if individually and collectively we have a conscience, then there's just stuff we don't do. The other of this pair is Otapa, which is fourth in among the seven treasures. It's a little different. Um, it's about a, awareness. If I go ahead and do this, there's going to be consequences that I'm really not going to want to deal with. For example, the one I just mentioned, if, if I'm deceitful with this person, that's going to affect some things tomorrow or next week. And that's, that's really not going to be good maybe in a small way, maybe a big way. Um, or for me, if I really like coffee, so, and I'm trying to keep it just in the morning. And if I, you know, it's four o'clock and I'm trying to do something, I'm working on finishing a book, and the temptation to have a coffee so I can, you know, be more awake and that, that feeling which I like from coffee, from caffeine. But if there's otapa, there's, I know that there's going to be consequences. 
that, okay, I won't sleep well tonight, I'm going to wake up tomorrow not having slept so well, and there will be a vicious cycle, and if I try to deal with it tomorrow with more coffee, it escalates. And I may not be feeling crappy right now, but either tomorrow or the day after I will be. Or for me, some foods, you know, the temptation, often when I'm really tired, uh, the temptation is to munch on some kind of comfort food. And then I feel lousy afterwards, physically. And sort of ethically as well. It's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I do a little guilt trip around it. Of course, I could let go of the guilt trip. but Or I could just say, oh, I know better. Eat two carrots. That's, that's my main escape from junk food. I know there are much more serious examples that could be brought up where we're tempted to um, maybe there's somebody at work who's annoying us and we're tempted to just stick in that dagger or make them you know they've been saying they've been saying all these stupid things and causing trouble I'm just gonna it, you know, I'm going to make them look like a fool at this meeting, or I'm going to tell this story about them behind their back, and it's going to turn people against them. There's going to be consequences of this stuff. So, Hitty is more the, I don't want to do that. But sometimes that's not enough, so there's also, otapa, which is basically, there's going to be consequences, and I don't want to deal with them. And sometimes we don't even have to know exactly what the consequences are. It's just, yeah, I know, if I do this, I'll be paying a price. These two go with uh, sila or virtue and work together. It's very hard to keep sila without a conscience and without some awareness of the consequences of bad, selfish, narcissistic behavior. So that's a little cluster of protective mechanisms and Traditionally, the Noble Eightfold Path is understood to require this, that to go anywhere with meditation, that practice of meditation, as well as mindfulness in daily life, needs a kind of ethical protection, which is what sila, especially in the sense of restraint, and then Hiri is kind of the emotional um, help to keep restraint. And then Otapa is an awareness of 
consequences, and traditionally this has been translated with the word dread, which is maybe a little heavy. But the truth to it is that, yeah, there's consequences that you should kind of be afraid of, not maybe on blind faith or because somebody told us we shouldn't, but we know that there's going to be pain of some sort if, if we indulge in a behavior. The next treasure, which is spoken of a lot in early Buddhism, but you don't hear about as much these days, is sutta. Sutta means to have heard. And the connotation here and elsewhere is back when uh, Buddhist teachings were oral, to have heard meant you've heard a lot of the teachings enough that you know the teachings. Nowadays, it would include to be well enough read or to have done enough study. And I'm not talking becoming a scholar, going off and getting a degree in the 12 steps or in Buddhism. But another protection of, of our practice is enough of a knowledge base to draw on. I feel there's some anti-intellectual currents in American Buddhism. I can't speak for 12-step circles. But in American Buddhism, there's kind of a poo-pooing of that, even though a lot of Buddhist books are being published and sold. So often it's like people read certain kinds of books, and I won't speculate why, but other stuff, not so much. Back to the point here, sutta is to build up a pretty good knowledge base over time, not, not be in a hurry, not just try to devour a lot of information, but take it in, digest it, so as challenges arise in our practice, we've got resources. Of course, you know, we have sponsors, we have teachers, we have Dhamma buddies. Those are other kinds of resources. But if you're on your meditation cushion and something comes up, it's helpful if you have some knowledge to draw on, even if it's secondhand knowledge, you read it somewhere. But if your mind goes click, oh, this, I'm experiencing this, and I heard so-and-so give a talk about that. And there seems to be a connection. You can explore the connection and have a better chance of working it through, coming to terms with it, as the case may be. Where if one doesn't have this kind of knowledge base, one will probably draw on old opinions, 
cultural um, influences, some of which are healthy, some not very healthy, and so on. So to have heard a lot or be learned, and I don't mean learned in a PhD way, but but have an appropriate uh, appropriate knowledge base for one's situation. The sixth treasure is a word that can be translated generosity. We usually hear the word dana, not dana, or not the word translated as treasure, but dana, the long a n a. Although you don't always see the bar over the first a. That literally is giving, not generosity. In the literal translation literal word is jaga, but it's simple and appropriate to say dana is generosity, but there's this other word that means both generosity and sacrifice. So it, it brings in the element not only of being generous, but to be generous in ways that challenge us. And the real challenge is to our possessiveness, our, you know, we're, we're an accumulative society with lots of stuff, and stuff causes us trouble. And it's hard enough being alive, and we're, we also have, many of us have so much stuff to take care of, and then others don't have enough. And so jaga here, generosity, is the kind of generosity that, that helps us work through our, our tendencies to cling to stuff, to hold on to stuff in ways that really aren't good for us, don't serve us. So I see this is protective of our path and practice. One, uh, both the 12 steps and Buddhist practice, and this is very explicit in Buddhist practice, letting go of me and mine, of egoism, of greed, hatred, delusion, is what the path is about. And to be generous, even to the extent that it's a, a bit of a sacrifice, you know. So to take generosity beyond giving old stuff to goodwill. It's, it's nice, but when I do it, it's, it's as much helping me as <laughs> goodwill, because I... I've got this stuff, and really I don't want it cluttering, but I don't want to throw it away, so I take it to goodwill. You might do that differently, but... But when you see somebody really needs something, and maybe you need it too, or you like it, and you're willing to have less of it so that somebody else gets what they need, or at least more of what they need, then there's the element of sacrifice. And to me, that's a deeper generosity. 
and that when we practice generosity materially, that's um, that's a priming of the the letting go that Buddhism focuses on. The letting go of stuff around ego, or in the big book, all the talk about humility, which I think is the terminology of the 1930s, the Oxford group or whatever it was that Bill drew on, that um, humility was talking about the same thing. Uh, relaxing ego stuff, letting go of ego stuff, and so on. And so generosity starts working that out on the material level, but then, you know, like the service organizations of, of AA and other programs or volunteering in various ways, where we're also generous with time, skills, knowledge, whatever, whatever hard-earned stuff we have. And so this, this protects our practice. Um, another way it does is the more we're pulling on to stuff, a lot of psychic energy gets wrapped up in protecting or guarding. And the Buddha had various analyses of these and how most violence can be traced to protecting stuff, protecting our energy supply. Recently, I read some stuff by Noam Chomsky about how if you listen to the American foreign policy elite, they've been talking since World War II as if we own the world. And so basically, we have the right to do whatever we want all over the place, because it's ours. Um, that's a very big example of the same thing, where when we feel ownership, then we very easily become defensive. And if we let that build, we're spending a lot of our energy defending stuff. And a lot of it's imaginary, especially in a world of impermanence. And if too much gets caught up in that stuff, you know, it gets kind of addictive. And there's not a lot of energy left for spiritual practice. The last treasure is Panya. Panya is uh, a term in early Buddhism that has various levels of meaning. One level is just knowledge. But that kind of tied in with uh, I already talked about knowledge with another term. A second meaning of panya is intelligence. That good practice requires 
a certain kind of intelligence, not necessarily IQ, not necessarily what can get, um, get you a degree, but the intelligence that pays attention, is thoughtful, thinking about things, what the important stuff of our life we, we think over, we talk with people who think clearly, who have experience, and we learn to draw on our innate intelligence and to help it grow. So that's another treasure to bring intelligence to bear. Other translations of this word are discernment. The ability to, for example, know what's harmful and know what's beneficial. That's a basic discernment. Oh, this, this is harmful. Um, blowing up at this, um, like one experience I was once I was getting my visa renewed in Bangkok as a foreign monk, I had to do that every year. So I was at, or no, my, it was a passport, not visa, passport. And so I'm at the American consulate and there was another American in front of me and wanted something from the Thai woman who was working that window. And I knew her from before. She's very nice. She's does a good job, professional. And this person was unwilling to follow the, the rules. And I've learned when you're dealing with a bureaucracy, might as well, it's easier usually, unless you got a lot of money or clout, to just follow the rules, because that's how these things work. And this person went in, she, she was demanding something, and she just blew up. And I watched uh, this woman who, who I later asked about this scene. I just saw her face kind of, she just went blank. Or no, she just kind of relaxed herself and tuned out and said, OK, ma'am, please have a seat. And then proceeded for an hour to ignore that person um, who who didn't realize in that situation she was at the mercy of this other person who was a decent person as far as I could tell. And then I was taken care of real quickly, partly because I was a monk, but so were two or three other people. And later the other person calmed down and I think <coughs> got her business managed. But just knowing that blowing up, you know, it, it made the whole atmosphere ugly for five, ten minutes. It did make this person's day easier. Whatever she was stressed out about probably got more stressful. And uh, the woman on the other side of the window who likes being blasted by somebody's anger. So that's a kind of basic discernment or, or wisdom.
I'd like to um, suggest these as supplementary protective aspects of practice that, for example, when meditators wonder why my practice isn't going well, sometimes it's because there isn't enough protection. And these, there are many ways to think about that. But unfortunately, a lot of people aren't that, to draw on my last term, intelligent, not always that intelligent about how they try to structure their practice and they don't support it adequately and then maybe it doesn't go that easily or well and then it's easy to say oh it doesn't work and give up but sometimes people go about it foolishly so I hope um, some of these perspectives are of, of use for supporting the Noble Eightfold Path, supporting meditation and mindfulness, supporting the 12 steps and sobriety. So. Now the floor is uh, wide open in case there's it's possible there are questions, but the floor is also open for just comments, other perspectives, things I didn't bring up that you thought of, and especially any connections with the 12 steps that I'm, I wasn't able to make, or anecdotes that would flesh out any of this. I didn't. Um, many of the people here follow 12-step programs, so um, I might not get them all right right now. So could we collectively help? Well, just very briefly. This is our first time here, so mm -hmm. the 12 steps are not
were entirely ready to have God remove all his defects of character. Seven, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood God, praying only for knowledge of God's will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practices principles in all our affairs. I've got the card too. It's in small print. I didn't mention God once, I believe, but, but it, 
need not be a stumbling block for those who don't usually think in those terms. I like the word faith, too. In the AA meeting that I go to, every time we come to the As We Understood God, if that's in the step, there's usually discussion about it in a small group. And uh, it's, it's never been an issue for me, although I was raised Catholic, it wasn't, I was told, take what you need and leave the rest, which is the best advice I ever got. Um, but uh, faith is better because it feels more like it's something that's not only outside of yourself, but you share it too because you've got the Buddha nature. I too like how you well, took a little bit of time to, to sort of open up the word, look at the inside of it, you know, assuming that how some people perhaps perceive the word. And I think there's a general tendency for people to perceive the word of faith, the word faith, as something that's out there to be attained when in fact it's something we, that's inherent in how we wield it is our responsibility. How we manage it. You know? and it's, it's our capabilities, our confidence, really. It's like a bank account. We don't put anything into it. It's worthless. So if you're not actively moving it, then it's just going to sit there. And I kind of like using the word faith because for me at least it implies more emotional strength than trust. Trust is real important too, but you know, you got to put your heart into it if it's going to work. And to me, the word faith implies that. I like your seven treasure. And you give everybody to look in the seven treasure and, and look what you is really meant for you. Even if you study a hundred book or a thousand book, if you look into what is meant to you, what is the reality, and you don't apply to your life is if it doesn't matter. That's what the last one the Panya intelligence. That's not easy to happen to everyone. Let's say that you started or practiced and you don't have Panya in the last, you don't you can't see what is right or wrong, bad or good. So Panya is taking a lot of practice. Study, practice, and then you get panya at a different level. Some people might have really panya and say, oh, this is bad. If I'm drinking, it's going to be bad for you, so I'm not going to drink. Or if you say a lie, it's going to be bad for you later. But some people don't see that. Mm-hmm. This is what a level of panya of intelligence. I have not time to explain to my kids sometimes. Do this and you will get panya. But kids have different level of panya too. So they need practice for how much parent to put on the table to teach or show the tip. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I 
There are a lot of these lists, the four, the five, the seven, and most of them end with panya, or in Thai pronunciation, panya. So sometimes, given the context, people didn't want to hear about the Noble Eightfold Path, so okay, we'll go through this, but they all lead to intelligence, insight, wisdom.
that kind of for me came from if one puts some faith in the Buddha's teaching then there's faith in Nibbana or liberation I kind of see that as the ultimate sobriety she was in a lot of distress about something but it sure didn't help where there are moments when I have to say to myself, you know, I think I forgot how to paint. 
ideas and beliefs, our protection. It, it's tricky because emotionally, okay, we're unhappy that something happened. And then we kind of want to know why. And often our question, why, is why me? And the implication, it shouldn't have happened. And so partly we, maybe it's a little bit we don't want to grow up. We want to be children who are protected from a dangerous world where I think in Buddhism we learn to accept, no, it's how the world is, we die. Things change, things fall apart. Beautiful things happen, they change. Ugly things happen, they change. I think, especially when we come from ego, we don't really want to be open to the reality of a world that has both love and and pain. You know, and some people want to, you know, hold on very strongly to a loving God in a way that can't accept the suffering. And then some, okay, like for me, okay, I start accepting suffering, but then I want to blame who's at fault which is often me. But that's still ego-based thinking. So. But that's painful to start thinking, well, maybe I messed up. So it's more comfortable to blame somebody else or project. So I think at root, and this is part of what Buddhism calls ignorance, we don't really want to open up to what's going on. We, we want to kind of keep it comfortable. Ideas, beliefs that are comfortable. I think sometimes they happen. I thought you need Panya in some level. You can just look at the situation why it's happened. Maybe instead of blame other people, look at ourselves first. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's hard to explain a typical order. You just look at yourself, blame yourself, just like why, why, why the why the fire is in my house and why the house caught on fire. Maybe because you forgot to turn off the the heat or or something like that. People, oh, why, why my house on fire? Why mm-hmm. these things happen to me? But it's hard to to explain to you. Oh, why don't you look at yourself? So why why these things happen? Right. right. And often when they're upset, that's not what they want to hear. They're they're asking for something else. Like, oh, I feel really bad for you. So sometimes you comfort first and then later, you know, maybe that happens because of... but, But then... You have to be sensitive to what's your relationship with somebody. Because most of the time our practice is working out our own stuff. And occasionally somebody will trust us enough that we can say something useful. But often that's not the case, so we 
we have to uh, keep our mouths shut. Unless your job is like mine to sit up here and talk. <laughs> we were talking, I was thinking of the idea of generosity and so forth, and I think one of the things that's true in the program, I think, is that once people at times get recovery, an important part of recovery is also giving away and sharing. And mm-hmm. I think that's true with so much of life. The more we give it away, the more we give back. Not that we give it away in order to get more, but that's a kind of a secondary gain. And so much of it, you know, is where we kind of need to do that somehow. Right, and it goes against, because we're used to material wealth, you know, if there's one car, either this person has it or that person, roughly. But with spiritual wealth, giving it away doesn't diminish it, or sharing doesn't diminish and often grows. So that's part of the shift from more, you know, we grow up in a material world. We use a language that's about material things. And so often we don't recognize when we fall into materialist thinking about things that aren't, don't work that way. Just like our culture now is so sold on the marketplace that we're led to believe everything is, you know, marketing and business and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure that's a good way to wonder, or I'm pretty sure that's not a good way to think about our inner life, spirituality. It's which is our scheduled endpoint. Anything else anyone would like to comment? Yes, I want to This is, uh, I just inadvertently ran across it on the internet. I thought I would be able to come to this. I couldn't use that. How often do you have the special program today, but there are programs that are going on here every day, and there is a newsletter that is by the bulletin board that shows all the programs. There's meditation um, every morning, and there are um, Sunday and Wednesday evening, there's programs kind of like this where we meditate, and then there's a talk and a discussion afterwards. So, so this particular discussion today was just sort of one of a variety of different discussions you have. There's also a 12-step Buddhist 12-step meeting for all kinds of 12-step people on Friday nights. Oh, here? Yes. Oh, that would be... At 7, right? Right. And it's 7? At 7.30. And it's just a drop-in group. You just show up and it happens every Friday. But it's run like a 12-step meeting. Um, it's kind of sort of like this. Um, there's a half-hour meditation um, at the beginning, 
and then um, somebody talks um, about the relationship between the 12 steps of Buddhism for maybe about 20 minutes or so, and then break up into small groups for about 20 minutes, and then have a closing. So I signed up for you know, and I have very email stuff. Um, and then you get an email every week that says what programs are coming up. Yeah, I've been here before a couple of times. Let's do it. So just so, um, just like the thanks I throw for coming and speaking to us this afternoon. And just remind people that um, Common Ground is run on the principle of donor generosity, so there is no charge for the programs that are offered here. Second Ground is not charge for his um, time to here. But the way that we give back is what we do cover Second Ground's traveling expenses, but then whatever um, donations are given, um, 60% of those are given to Sunday Ground, and the remainder goes to the operating expenses for Common Ground, and there's a goal in the so best wishes with everyone's sobriety and liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.